You're listening to R&D in the QC with Tariq Bakari and Larkin Eggleston. Episode 13, we talk affordable housing, red light cameras, and special guest, the Honorable Trisha Cotham and Councilman Matt Newton. Welcome to R&D in the QC. And I'm actually going to start this week off a little different. because I'm so tired. (laughs) Well, we're not supposed to complain about that. No, we have had some requests. Uh, we're both loud. We both have, I guess, yes. deep voices, and people can't tell us apart. So this, this is, is... <laughs> see, you're gonna mess it all up. <laughs> all right, so this is Larkin talking Tark. right now. This is Larkin. Nope. Okay. Oh, all right. You're no. the whole this thing. is Tark. The the really like the one super smart voice that like you're like who's saying such intelligent things? <laughs> the smart voice that says idiotic things. Yes, that's Tark. <laughs> uh, that's uh, yeah. So, so so Larkin. Yes. How are you doing, Larkin? I'm well, Tark. Thank you, Larkin. All right. So now, for anybody who's been confused, <laughs> people have said, "Hey, we we don't really Do we know really you." Really sound alike. Well, no. I think it's that a lot of the people who listen don't know either of us personally, so they don't have any baseline to compare to. I see. So anyway, uh, hopefully you now know who's who. Uh, Thank again, you, Larkin. Based if you see your volume level spiking, it's probably Tark. Tark. Yes, that's true. So, I have no idea where I was going after that, but we are on episode 13. We're glad you're with us. 1-3. And we're going to start. We So, we had a strategy session, as we've talked about in the past. First one ever live streamed. Yes. So, you now have the opportunity to watch those on the city's Facebook live stream feed. Um, first Monday of every month, we have these strategy sessions. There's not uh, so much votes as there is information sharing, getting everybody kind of brought up to speed on the work of the committees, any big projects we've got going on uh, for the city. And so we talked about a couple things tonight. The first one we talked about, and you, you dove into head first mm. in the meeting tonight, was housing. I will pull out my notes here. Before I do that, I'd like to give you a live update right now, Larkin. Uh, Villanova is leading Michigan 30 to 26. Don't care. Okay, good. I'm still cheering for the of Chicago. If they were in it, I'd be watching. Perfect. Perfect. Go so, uh, Sister Jean. Sister Jean, that's right. Hashtag Man. Sister Jean. Yeah, hashtag Sister Jean. So listen, um, this was, so he, here's where here's where I went off the rails tonight. So we got all these presentations. We've seen a lot of them. There were a couple new pieces of information, for me at least, but then I found out a little later through some creative Google searching that this wasn't actually new information. But the way that it was presented to us of Charlotte's affordable rental supply, it's always been, the numbers changed slightly, but it was 24,000 or 21,000. Today it went back up to 24,000. Affordable units is the gap, the crisis we're facing. They under don't exist. 60% area under well, under income. 80% AMI. Well, yeah, again, well, we blew up everything today anyway. But so that's the way it's always been explained. But they gave us this graph today that showed three buckets in the breakdown. It showed under 30% AMI, extremely low income. And it showed there's a 27,000 um, unit. Uh, uh, 27,000 renter households are in the bucket, but only 7,500 uh, affordable available rental units. Then the next bucket shows 47,000 uh, households that are in need and 23,000 units, and that's zero to 50% AMI. And then finally, zero to 80% AMI, 79,000 uh, is the uh, is the households that need it. 80,000 is the number of units that are there. So we've been showed this data multiple times, shown this data multiple times. But what I just realized tonight was these things are duplicative of each other. It's zero to 30, zero to 50, zero to 80. And that's what really, 
I got ups, like physically upset when I saw this tonight. We could be, tell. Because they they are trying to tell us, trying to back us into a story that the numbers are better when you present it like this, when in reality, they should be presenting us 0 to 30, 30 to 50, and 50 to 80. Because when you do it like that, what you suddenly realize is 50 to 80, there's a 25,000 unit surplus there. Uh, 30 to 50, we're only about 4,400 in a gap there, which is much more achievable. And the massive gap is in that 0 to 30 AMI space, which is 19.5 thousand. And here's why this makes me so, so mad, Larkin. Because when you look back in the same update we got tonight of where our $14.6 million of city taxpayer-funded money has gone with the uh, Charlotte Housing Authority, 51% of that went to... 50% and over AMI housing units. When you look at the 2018 housing uh, proposals that are for the housing trust fund, uh, 79% of those are in the 50% and up range. It's like, you know, we're declaring victory in a space that has already a surplus. And it's just like, my mind is just boggled that this these are people presenting this information to us strategically. They decided to show it like this. How, how do you feel about that? I mean, I think the... To your point, the graph is misleading at a quick glance. Um, it, it would lead you to misunderstand the problem and the gaps. I feel like it's more than misleading. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I do think we, we had already seen and heard some data that led us to believe that our gap was really primarily on the lower end of this scale. It wasn't maybe as drastic as, as the way that we, we kind of figured it out tonight. But I do think we knew that our gap was towards the, the bottom of this area median income scale. The other thing I'll say about, um, I'm with you that we've, we've got to figure out a way to better prioritize this low, this 30 and below, the 30 to 50% area median income housing. But some of the way that you make these projects work financially is you've got to have some of the higher AMI scale to kind of balance out the, I guess, the loss that you incur on this really low AMI but that's, part, part the, of the scale. That, that's nuts too. If you're telling me that you can throw $23.9 million at 11 projects in 2018 city council, which is what the ask is. We're not going to go all that route because all the 9% money isn't going to get awarded for all of them. But if you're telling me that you can do that and you, you can get 950 units, but for this to work in this market that you exist in, 79% of those, or 748 of the 950 units, have to be over 50% AMI, some of them over 80% AMI, in order to get 21% of 30% and below there, I, I would just say this model doesn't work. No, and, and to some extent it probably doesn't, but I mean at the 50% AMI you might be breaking even if you're the, the person trying to make this, this financial stack work. At the 80% AMI maybe you're making a some money, but not obviously what a market rate uh, price would afford you. The 30%, I mean, anything we do below 30% AMI in terms of uh, housing, at each one of those units is losing money every single time a rent payment is made. Um, and so, just for clarity for our, our listeners who have glossed, glazed over with AMI and all the same, it, it changes depending on how big your family is. But in this case right now, in our area, a family of three that makes $19,000 a year for the whole family is at a 30% AMI. So when we say 30% AMI, just picture that's the person who's trying to be served. And they're at the top end 
of that of that salary. When we're talking at that point, rents in the three hundred some exactly. dollar yeah. area. So I mean, it is just you're losing so much money subs- making that subsidy that you've got to have some that are making money on the other side of that deal to make this this the build work. And it's not it's not an effective way for us to chip away at what is an enormous zero to thirty percent gap. But I'm not sure there's there is really an effective way. It's such it's such a cost burden to try to make those units work that for us to try to tackle what is you know what is just nineteen thousand unit gap is is just really. But see, so here so here's where this heavy. is where I ended today. In, in the session that was there. And hopefully this, these thoughts came, came through clearly. I'm sure they didn't. But we need a wholesale change in the way we've been saying to the city, number of units, that's the measure by you can look at us and what the gap is. We're going to solve 5,000 now. The gap is 21,000 or whatever. But in reality, it's the major gap is 30% AMI and below. And I am a believer at this point, based on what I've learned in the last couple months, that there is no amount of money or strategy solving this through land costs and putting the developers in the middle that's going to solve for that group of people. It's like the group that presented to us tonight, Away Home, and their model where they're cutting out the middleman of developers, of land costs, and they're attaching the program. And, and, and nimbyism. And nimbyism. And they're attaching their program. Yeah, I, I have never been one that's big on like vouchers just theoretically for different things. But when I think about this... And I look at the data, then I met, I got to meet with them one-on-one today earlier. They said, we did a pilot with just over 100 and some uh, households, essentially. And we had 1.4 million or something like that. And we, we basically worked with all of them for around 18 months during this pilot process. And they were either homeless, near homeless. That means they were a couple weeks away from being evicted from where they were. And they basically spent, on average, $10,000 per person through their voucher program in meeting the gap that enabled them in that 18 month period to continue to live inside their AMI range. And here's the thing that blows my mind. After that 18 month period, 77% of them no longer needed the subsidy and now could afford market rate uh, uh, units based on how they had had raised their their level of upward mobility. That is how you solve 30% and below. Not trying to dump stupid amounts of trust fund money at it. And I, that's what makes me so mad is that it's been the bait and switch with these numbers of let's just do it and we need the mix and we all know we don't need 50 to 80% AMI housing in this town. There's a 25,000 unit surplus. Well, as we start moving people, hopefully, and that program that you mentioned is amazing. It'd be interesting to try to analyze is whether or not you could scale it. Exactly, yeah, good level. question. Yeah. But... Um, as you mentioned, that program is kind of stair-stepping people out of a difficult position in life back onto their feet. And so as you do hopefully stair-step all of these uh, individuals and families that need a hand up, we've got to also have housing for them at each step. Because if, if they're progressively able to spend a little bit more on their housing, we've got to have housing at all those steps. Something that just came, kind of popped into my mind as we were talking about this, so I don't know how clearly I'll be able to uh, to vocalize it, but you know, maybe part of the way we can model some of these things that make them more financially viable but tackle our 30% is maybe we have uh, stair-stepping increases in those rents. So maybe we can start some of these projects where more of the units are at 30% for the first 
year, two years, three years, and then they gradually start to go up to 40, 50, 60 over time so that the finance model works better in aggregate for each of these projects. But at the beginning of them, we're we're fighting a little harder to tackle the 30% and under. uh, And maybe we have some some kind of wraparound programs for some of these people at that 30% and below that help them stair-step as those rents rise. Uh, so that maybe they've got better opportunities. So I, that's kind of the early stages of an idea. NRA, naturally rising affordable housing. Maybe that acronym could work. But I mean, I think <laughs> I think maybe that's a way where you say these units will start to generate some actual revenue a couple years down the road. But right now we've got to tackle this 30% and under. Uh, so let's let's hit that hard now, figure out how to get these people up and back on their feet and moving up those steps along with the rents that rise to the point where we can make the project financially viable over the long term. Yeah. Um, I, I just, it, that's an interesting idea. I'd be interested to see staff response to some of that. But at the end of the day, at the end of this day, what I see is 50 to 80, let's stop putting a single taxpayer dollar into that space until it becomes clear that we're not at some massive surplus. Let's focus our housing trust dollars where there's an actual gap between 30 and 50 that dollars in a trust can actually impact. And we have 4,400 units solved there, a manageable number. And then let's take that 19.5 thousand units at 30 uh, AMI and below, and let's figure out kind of a new model that's not throwing trust dollars at something that literally can't work and take this away home and other types of models and see how we can attach this to the person in upward mobility. And let's stop bringing up school teachers and police officers and nurses who are not in either one of those two ranges. They're in the 50 to 80 range. And and some we keep hearts heartstring tugging there. We need to take care of those folks. We absolutely do. But that's not this problem. Well, I think maybe what we need to be focusing on with our um, you know, first responders, our teachers, the people that we kind of talk about in that workforce piece that are maybe in the 60 or 80 percent or whatever what we need to be looking at there and it was brought up briefly tonight is how what kind of programs can we can we scale larger or can we start to finance that help them move from renting into home ownership like first-time homeowners because as they move into home ownership again in a responsible way we don't want to burden these people with something that long term they can't sustain but if we move them into a responsible and and affordable home ownership opportunity then that frees up some of that rental housing that we need. And we again, it's this pipeline where we're moving That's people exactly right, up man. the steps to homeownership where they can start to, through their homeownership, accumulate wealth. And um, so I think maybe that's we need to transition that 80% discussion to now let's try to find that next step. How do we get them from 80% rent, AMI renting to 80% AMI owning? Or 50 or 60%. And that, that every time you move somebody out of there, to your very good point, you've freed up a new a new unit there. Rental so unit, yeah. so fifty to eighty is not where we need that. We need that done thirty to fifty. And if if you can evolve someone in the thirty to fifty, either into that fifty to eighty, or still in the thirty to fifty, but now in a home a, a home they own, that can free that up. So we need to get creative with things like that. I, t- I totally agree. All right. So the other big thing we tackled, and, and the reason I guess all the TV cameras were there tonight because they left as soon as we were done, uh, was red light cameras. The red light cameras. Which I don't, uh, you know, I was actually surprised it was as big kind a news of, yeah, story as it was. Fabricated story on that. Um, we've gotten a handful of emails about it from constituents, but we've gotten a lot more 
reach out from the media. So I don't I, maybe back in the late 90s when this all started and I wasn't in Charlotte yet, this was some hot button issue and that's why the media is stirring it up again. Um, but I think that the goal, the reason that we start talking about this is we want to be uh, we want to be doing anything we can to try to prevent any sort of pedestrian or motorist fatalities. And so that is obviously one way that you can greatly decrease a lot of those T-bone type impacts that happen in an intersection when people run a red light. Um, those angle intersect, those angle collisions. I'm sorry, are how that's that's where a lot of those angle collisions come. at stoplighted intersections. Right, that's where you're going to get the the worst um, outcomes in terms of potential fatalities and injuries and things like that. So it, it is the data demonstrated to us. This is undeniably an effective method. However, um, it's it's certainly not the only method to to calm traffic to reduce collisions to reduce fatalities uh, and so knowing that that works we also have to consider other things that might work what was demonstrated to us tonight was that red light cameras are not only now people in their minds you, you look and you go well this is the city trying to create revenue by giving us tickets not only did this not create revenue for the city but through and if we can get into it if you want but it, it's it's boring through a series of legal challenges Ultimately, this was costing the city money. Every ticket that was written by one of these red light cameras actually cost the city money out of their general fund, which translated to the listeners, your tax dollars. Yep. So the two questions I had before this was, how much does it cost us? And how, how, how much big of an impact does it make towards safety? So to the cost us point, uh, city attorney Bob Hageman, who literally loves to talk law and the history of law in Charlotte. So this is like the perfect job for that dude. He's been with us like he's been with the city like 30 years. Exactly. So all these things he talks about, he was there for that. Too. And he dude, he gets so pumped up when you ask him a law question. But so he walked us through some of the law background of all of this and basically showed that it cost about and flowed through about $1.5 million a year, I think, to CMS through the combination of like $50 citations that we paid 75. Bottom line is we paid and would pay if we if we reenacted this about $750,000 a year out of the general fund just given how the statutes are as it relates to 90% of the money having to go to the school system leaving us 10% for other other abilities which doesn't cover all the costs and actually probably more than that because the 750 was over a decade ago when we were using That's right. this there's more cars on the road now so one would think that there'd probably be more instances for there to be yeah. tickets issued. and So no less than three quarters of a million dollars a year to keep doing this. So relatively meaningful amount of money. Not the craziest, but also not small. So then you go over to the stats and facts of safety. So we got explained tonight that 131,000 crashes have occurred over a, a five-year period in Charlotte of recent. Um of that, 2.7% or around 700 per year uh, of these crashes were in signalized intersections. So about two a day. Yeah. And they are uh, even lower kind of percentage of that were priority, uh, were, were angled, as you talked about it before. So if you look at that, 2.7%, right? Small number of these overall crashes are actually happening there. And even smaller number are angled. And then if you look at what really is important here is we need to, every life is valuable, so we need to try to minimize that as much as possible. But 
250 crashes have actually in that period resulted in fatalities. Over the five-year period. Over that five-year period. So 22%. So about, one, so about one a week. Right. If my math off the top of my head is quick. And if it was quick if it's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so I'm not going to double check. I've been doing too much math tonight. So I'm going to trust you on that. 22% of those 250 have been at intersections in general. So it's 55. And then only 11, not percent, 11 in that five-year period have been angled crashes. So about one every six months. Yeah, two a year. <laughs> yes. That's the same. Exactly. Same, exact same. 2.2 a year. So I guess the, the bottom line is there are other things that we could do that would be much more effective with three quarters of a million or more to, to a bigger number of those of those crashes and those fatalities. Right, because it's not it's not that we are choosing to do this or not do this in a vacuum. It's there's an opportunity cost. If we spend seven hundred fifty thousand or a million dollars every year on this red light program, that's seven hundred fifty thousand or a million that we're not spending on some other traffic calming measure. So there was a, as some folks will remember uh, who've been in Charlotte for a couple of years at Stonewall and College, right uh, between the West End of the Convention Center. In the span of, like, I want to say a couple of weeks, maybe it was a couple of months, there were two pedestrian fatalities where um, just the way that the intersection was was kind of set up was leading folks to, um, you know, I don't even know the science behind it, but there was the way that the intersection was laid out was causing people to not see pedestrians in crosswalks and they were turning into and hitting them. We lost two people in a span of a, a very short span of time. So they re-engineered that, that intersection. That's the kind of stuff where we have to say, are there intersections that are we see repeated accidents, whether it's car to car, car to person, car to bike? Are there stretches of road, as we saw with a CMS student last week, are there stretches of road that are dark, where children are walking down the street to try to catch a school bus, as yeah. this Olympic high school student yeah. was? And, and that we could put a sidewalk, that we could put better lighting, that we could move the bus stop, whatever it is. I mean, there's so many things we can do to help eliminate car versus any sort of, of other human injuries and deaths. And so, you know, we looked at this and thought, can that $750,000 a year be better utilized on other initiatives? And, and that's what we don't know yet. So we've kind of, my ask and a couple of our ask was, um, show us what, if we don't do this, show us what else we could use that same similar amount of money for. Um, and statistically, how has that impacted accidents and fatalities in other cities that have implemented those sort of projects? We got to start finding some topics we disagree on because we, we just we, we've just been singing from the same hymnal now for too long. And I don't want to let down the R&D and the QC the listeners, peop the people who tuned in to hear us battle us it out to find some battle points. I mean, do we have any battle points right now? I really want to tear into you right now, buddy. Yeah, well, it's it's hard to argue with me when I'm right. Yeah, that's so true. That's so true. So we had committee reports out tonight too. Nothing, no big new breaking news. Pretty much all things we've covered on the show at some point or another. Uh, we talked about stormwater. We talked about Eastland, which we'll actually uh, touch on again later in this episode with Councilmember Newton. Um, we talked about all sorts of things, but it was a good day. We got a lot done, and. Uh, I think it's about time we, we take a break and we come back in segment two. We've got a very special guest, a former member of the North Carolina General Assembly and a great friend of the pod. You'll have to stick around to find out who. All right, let's do it. 
special guest in the studio. This is a true friend of the pod, I'd say. She is. She's wonderful. Former state representative, Representative Trisha Cotham, welcome to the program. Hey guys, glad to be here. This is a big deal for you. We're so I, excited. I am so excited This right is now. your big break. This not is that, right. Not that you were one of the youngest people to ever serve in the General Assembly. Or the or only youngest had, female. Or that you had kids. The, <laughs> um, I hear your mom still has to tell you how to act at church. Is that correct? She does. Um, you know, Easter just happened. And so in order that I would behave and not get her in trouble mm. at her church, uh, we had to go over the rules She's given lot. me some advice sure. as well yeah, throughout the, um, uh, the years Boundaries are an issue. You know, I mean, she's going to tell you what she thinks. Yeah, to she's kind of a wild it. card, so it's odd that she'd be the one telling you to behave. Right. Well, that's, that's how I think. Because she's mean, kind of a rebel. Right, right. But she definitely told me how to behave and told me to stand and pose and take an Easter picture. Uh-huh. So, well, know. and for anyone who's, who's playing catch up here, if you don't know the Cotham political dynasty, yeah. uh, Pat Cotham. It's like the Kennedys is, of is, North Carolina. Is one of, our, um, one of our at-large county commissioners from Mecklenburg County, so it is... So, Tracy, tell us what you, you. I just. I'll start with this question. You are in a unique spot because, for some reason, you watch us almost all the time. I mean, you're totally plugged in. So, what's your take on the new council? Well, um, you know, I'm the number one fan, mm. obviously, of all of y'all, and it's really interesting for me in my new role at McGuire Woods. And we just opened up a Charlotte office, so mm-hmm. we do government affairs work. So I monitor local government, and it's it's a neat perspective coming from the legislature, watching city council. Um, I'm really impressed with all of you and how you work well together. I love the personalities. I love, um, it's really inspiring to me to see so many young people on as someone who carried that label for so long at the legislature to see so many of you really working hard and Mm -hmm. working well, I think sets a really huge example for more people to come and you're doing you're doing it the right way and that means a lot for those of us who kind of carried the water so you could do that. Tark couldn't agree with you more. Couldn't he's, agree with he's you. He's nodding more. with everything you're indeed, saying. Indeed, indeed. Most of us are working so hard. So listen, um <laughs> well uh so what do you go back and tell McGuire Woods uh, for the updates on what's going on here? Well, I kind of listen for what you guys are talking about, who you are talking about. I think of when you guys are talking about um, an issue like affordable housing or other things, transportation issues, I think about our current clients or ways that we can help you accomplish mm. your goals because that's really important. We're solutions-oriented firm, and so we want to help you guys. And so it's a lot of, a lot of thinking, a lot of brainstorming, lot of people watching it's all very exciting and also checking out your sock game and I got to do my own internal poll every Monday of mm. who's got the strongest Strong. socks Larkin those are pretty good those may be your best yet you've Thank kind you. of been dull here you so, know when you, so. shots fired well, you are dull but when you don't have three kids under five you have a lot of free time to think Shops about things for like socks. Your sock game right, right. sure I'm just looking for matching socks matching these socks days. and you really don't yeah. need matching socks no, not at, at all, all. not no. at all all right, good. So last question for you. Uh, how are we doing with uh, with uh, Charlotte-Raleigh relations these days, in your view? I think you guys are working really hard to do a better job. I think you at least you know that there has been an issue in the past. You're acknowledging it, and you're creating a plan. And, you know, just having those relationships with your lawmakers and not just the Mecklenburg delegation, but really expanding that and getting to know those who lead different committees will really make a difference. And um, just keeping that dialogue going is really important. What's going on with your barbecue tour, man? We're working on it. It was just a big idea that you just totally didn't follow up on. 
Senator Tart, let's uh, let's connect. We got to let's make bring it. He said he'd chair your committee. I'm not sure it's a committee so much, but uh, yeah. It's a SWAT I mean, I've been eating a lot of barbecue. Well, know. you've been, you've been <laughs> yeah, you've been. I don't on know your if that's what you're party. asking. <laughs> no, that's it. That's it. Well, good. I appreciate it. Dude. All right. Representative Cotham, we appreciate you coming on. We appreciate you being such a loyal city council follower uh, and, and know what we're, what we're doing and trying to figure out ways to help us with it. So we welcome you back on the pod anytime and uh, keep up the good work. Y'all keep up the great work. We'll be right back. Pitch that boat at Highway Pimpin'. Eastside, Eastside, Eastside. Samstown Budget, Sweetheart, riding out Nellis in my G-Ride. Pitch that boat at Highway Pimpin'. Eastside, Eastside, Eastside. Samstown Budget, Sweetheart, riding out Nellis in my G-Ride. All right, welcome back. For our final segment today, we have brought back a former guest, Pop Pop, <laughs> aka Maddie Newts. Uh, we welcome Councilmember Matt Newton back on. So one of the topics that we've uh, talked about a lot recently, it's been big in the media, and uh, and Matt is front and center doing the work on this is the Eastland Mall site. So we brought Matt back on the show, uh, have him on again, and have him update us on the process, where we're at, and where we're going. Matt, tell us what's going on with Eastland. Yeah, well, I. I appreciate it, Larkin Tark. Uh, it's great to be here again. Uh, so uh, I think it's important that we backpedal slightly and we talk about uh, the the process uh, leading up to to uh, to now. Uh, so so over the past few years, you know, this has been the the biggest issue uh, in my district, and it's certainly something that uh, that we're all uh, aware of, and and I believe the community uh, for for whatever development occurs at the site, the community's support is going to be essential. Um, so uh, having that as a uh, as a foundation, uh, I, I think that the community uh, and this was something you know that was uh, readily apparent during my uh, my campaign. Uh, the community hasn't felt as though it has been given an opportunity to provide well to be engaged and provide quality input uh, in the process. So uh, as the council person, uh, I have been working hard to uh, to ask questions uh, and to to get uh, answers myself. I think uh, so. So up up until about maybe three weeks ago, uh, I, I was uh, asking some questions. I wasn't receiving answers to those questions. So wanted to be more involved uh, in the process of interviews with the bidders. So I uh, spoke with the uh, the city manager uh, as well as the uh, interim director of our economic development department and got approval to be in uh, the uh, the interview process. Uh, it was my you know came as a surprise to me that those interviews were canceled, uh, but that led. To, uh, to, to last Monday and the opportunity, not just for us as council members, but for the, uh, the public at large to be present and hear all of the, uh, the proposals. So what did you think of those proposals? Uh, yes, yeah, where I, I was gonna go and specifically, you know, one, I, I applaud you because obviously all of us have been fighting for different ways for more transparency, for more community involvement. So obviously that, that's great. I'm just curious though, having seen that now, is it, was it due to the earliness in the stage that a lot of questions were really kind of unanswered from our role as it relates to what do you need from us? And then I guess secondarily, when I look at the four presenters, all four had different strengths and weaknesses, but really, if I looked at that first one specifically, I felt like they were more of what the community maybe wanted. And then maybe the third one was a little bit more about what the development community would be able to provide. So what's your take on everything you saw? Yeah, so I think that uh, that at this point, uh, we are a little bit further along than we've been in quite some time. At the same point in time, uh, we we are not 
at a point to uh, to receive that information. And and even last Monday's meeting, uh, the scope of that meeting was limited. Uh, we as council members uh, were were not allowed to independently ask questions. Uh, we received questions that were uh, uh, pre-drafted for us by city staff. Uh, but uh, but I think, and what's important here moving forward, it, is that uh, the community now knows what the proposals on the table are. There's an opportunity, uh, some buzz created an opportunity for folks to uh, to, to talk about uh, preferences and, and, and become more engaged, provide input. Uh, I will be having a uh, community town hall on April the 21st to uh, to go through these proposals and and at the same time uh, receive so uh, uh, so reach out to the community and and hopefully receive some of that input. Uh, I I really disliked the um, uh, the idea of a recommendation. That was the original uh, uh, process. By the way, was we would receive a single recommendation last Monday. Uh, and and then move forward without knowing what the other proposals on the table were. And I hated the idea of, of us receiving that recommendation, uh, not knowing that, and then certainly uh, the community not knowing what you know what could have been possible, so it could weigh in, and and then you know potentially six years uh, down the road finding out oh well you know that was on the table. So so that's why I thought it was uh, so very important that Do you, you know, think we, have, we this, have all the this right? transparency. Do you think we have all the right? players at the table? Do you think they're, I mean, we didn't do an RFP. We're not required to do one. I've learned since then. Do you think we have all the right players at the table? And I guess secondary question to that is, what is our role in your mind? Because I'm still struggling with that personally. What is our role as government in, in this in this process for something as big as Eastland? Clearly, no one's arguing that it's not necessary out there. But, you know, where, where do we sit and, and what's our optimal role? Well, we certainly have uh, a wide array of developer interest. And so I think the key player here is who the developer that will develop that site will be. And, uh, and then it's our role uh, as council members. Uh, the city owns the land. Uh, we uh, approve uh, rezonings. Uh, it's our role to, to, uh, to approve uh, of, that, uh, of that developer. Uh, at this point, I think within the committee now, we can talk about uh, what, and, and I would encourage the community to reach out to, uh, to council members, particularly economic development uh, committee members, uh, so that during our conversations, we can talk about what's best for the community. And once again, in my opinion, I think uh, the community's uh, voice is of preeminent importance uh, in that discussion because it will be the community support that ultimately decides the success of whatever is built there. All right, I'm going to let Tarek uh, take us out of this episode, but I will say, man, keep keep uh, keep the hard work up, and don't screw this up because you're right across the street from District One. So, you know, yeah. that's a District Five project, but it's uh, it's got a lot of impact on a lot of my easternmost neighborhoods, and so uh, I'm counting on you, Matt. I won't let you guys down. <laughs> Appreciate it. Well, yeah. that's another great episode. Thirteen, I believe, Mark. Is that Lucky correct? number thirteen. Lucky thirteen in the books. Uh, we'll talk to you next time. You're listening to R&D in the QC with Tariq Bakari and Larkin Eggleston.